This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. As a gardener or plant person, there's something beckoning about a beautiful pot or container. They are focal points, they are structure, they are foils. The most handcrafted of them are very tactile, as though they want you to touch them, to admire them, and even, perhaps, to fill them with plants, with flowers, with dreams, a perfect thing to do in winter. Inspired by modern architecture and traditional Japanese gardens, Claire Banfield of a Pot Spot has spent the last six years crafting her stoneware pots from Portland cement and other organic materials. Claire joins us today from Oregon Public Broadcasting in Portland. Welcome, Claire. Hello, Jennifer. Introduce us, at least in a preliminary way, to what a pot spot is and what you what you what you create there claire well a pot spot is the business i started because when i started making pots i became instantly obsessed i was working out in my garage and they started piling up and i realized that if i could find a way to sell the pots I could earn money to buy more materials and tools to make more pots. It was just the start of a very vicious cycle. (laughs) (laughs) Or a beautiful cycle, depending on how you look at it. I can see from the garage's perspective why it might have needed to move um, out of that particular spot. So what got you started making pots in the first place? Well, I was living in another little cottage, and it had a very large backyard. I had been growing a lot of vegetables, but planted everything directly into the ground and had wanted to create garden beds. I wanted something that had the look of being there for a really long time and had read an article online about hypertufa. I had never heard of it before. And I really was attracted to the fact that it was something I could purchase all of the materials at a low cost and do everything myself. And the result would be an old stone uh, that would attract moss and lichens. And I really liked the uh, idea that it would transform over time and the garden Mm. beds would somehow become part of the landscape and the garden itself. How long ago was that initial inspiration and how old were you at that point in your life? I was 35. When I was first started, it was 2011. And I remember mm-hmm. reading, it was in the fall, and reading the article about the stone and initially being extremely excited and thinking I could just get on right away and get the garden beds 
constructed so I could get everything planted. The article suggested to start by making pots first to get a handle on the material. And I was irritated. I thought, I don't want to make pots. I wanted to construct garden beds using the hypertufa material. Ooh, so how big how big were you <laughs> considering at that point? The garden beds were gonna be, you know, six to eight feet long by several feet wide. They were gonna be very large. Wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so I didn't realize that when you're making concrete, you're not supposed to let the concrete set up when the temperature is below 50 degrees. And then mm. the material itself takes a month to cure, and you mm. need to mist it every day. And so when I was reading in the fall about how to construct the garden beds, and I learned that I needed to make pots first to get a handle on the material, I mm-hmm. then realized with the weather, I wouldn't be able to construct the garden beds until the spring. And then once the beds were cured and ready to plant, it wouldn't be uh, ready until the next fall. And so right. it just seemed like this really long, drawn-out process uh, to get my garden going. I just wanted everything done. I wanted to stop my fingers and have it all complete. <laughs> that doesn't seem to work. We all know. We all have those delusions every yes. now and then, don't we? So what So what ended up happening? How, how did it all unfold for you at that point? Well, I started looking around for forms. I was reading that the stone will take on the shape and texture of whatever you put it in. So I... Mm-hmm. But I need to get on making these pots and figure out a form to put them in. And I uh, used a lot of my grandmother's uh, old cooking items. She we used to cook a lot, and she had a kitchen made a kitchen aid mixer, and I used the bowl from the kitchen aid mixer as my first form. Wow. I think I'm sort of jumping ahead here, but did you ever make the large no. hypertufa garden beds, or did you just become so in I love with your pots s- that that yeah. was? I just became so invested in the pots. It was a terribly sad sight because my uh, garden in the backyard, all of the carrots, I wouldn't even go out and have time to pick the carrots. They just slowly would come out of the ground like rising dead bodies and uh, <laughs> I completely so abandoned your, your the garden. garden. <laughs> so your garden inspired this beautiful artwork that would complement your garden and yet it led to a little bit of neglect. Complete in your garden neglect. As well. <laughs> Have you always been a gardener up until that point, Claire? I always loved to garden and be outside. I grew up, my dad had a small vegetable garden in our backyard. He would pickle vegetables and make salsa. Uh, We had a standard Mm. size backyard, but 
It seemed a lot larger because it backed to a small wooded area that was part of a neighborhood park. And I just spent a lot of time outside running around and just loved plants, all kinds of plants. I spent a lot of time every summer at a primitive cabin on the Salmon River, which is up by Mount Hood. It was built by my great-great-uncle during the Depression and had a wood stove in the kitchen for heat and a room where we would all sleep. It was my mom, my dad, my brother, and I. I thought it was so funny. I was listening to your interview with the senior curator of the Denver Botanical Gardens, and he talked about how his dad would leave him by the stream to fish. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and how people nowadays would call child protective services. <laughs> and it reminded me that my brother and I would climb in the back of my dad's pickup truck, and we would sit on a large orange inner tube. And we would fly up the mountain highway, and my dad would drop us off along the side of the river and have us float back to the cabin. I think it was just his way of having some time to himself. (laughs) (laughs) But we had great adventures just floating down the river, and we would pretend we were Lewis and Clark. And my grandparents had a home on a river about five minutes from our place in the suburbs. It was on a very remote road. And so it just seemed like an entirely different world. The river that they lived on, it was dark green and slow moving. It reminded me of like a swamp down in the bayou. And my grandpa had beehives and a chicken coop. I remember all kinds of strange plants out in their yard, one in particular was a very large plant with huge leaves. And my grandma would talk about how it was from prehistoric times, and we would imagine dinosaurs eating them. Her brothers were John and Rudy Henney. They helped found the American Rhododendron Society. Her brother John was its first president and her brother Rudy was the editor of the bulletin until his death. They traveled throughout Europe and Asia collecting cuttings. So I think she had large collection of strange plants just from being around them and their interest. That is quite an eclectic education as a young person on the scope and range and beauty and mystery of the plant world from the cabin up by Mount Hood and the both suburban garden in near Portland and but then the kind of wild escape not far away and then the the stories or awareness of this international travel for the collection of one genera must have been fairly formative for you. Yeah, you know, I learned more about it as I got older. To me, he was always Mm -hmm. just a guy in overalls and a cowboy hat with a piece of straw hanging out of his mouth. (laughs) (laughs) So you grew up very clearly 
surrounded by a love of the outdoors and even more kind of esoteric plant knowledge. We then find you as a as a young adult, 35, and you decide to take on this adventure in creating what was going to be beds and then became this bigger adventure in in pots. Had you been a potter or ceramicist prior to that? No, I always liked to make things. I realized Mm -hmm. when I was 20 that I could make everybody's Christmas presents and I would make soap. Uh, etch glass, do mosaics. Every year I would take on a different project. And I found that I could, instead of going out and buying presents for everybody, I could use the money on materials for a craft that I always wanted to try. And if you were really nice, I would give you the soap that smelled really good. But I found that it <laughs> is possible to make terrible smelling soap. So And so that kind of led you to this um, excitement over the hypertufa, which then has led into your current art. Yeah, I've always just liked experimenting with different materials. Mm-hmm. So you start with that very first form, which is the vintage KitchenAid mixer bowl, a shape that I can see in my head right now and can, you know, almost hold it in my hands. It's such a an iconic kitchen form. Where does that lead you then in terms of the many adventurous and interesting forms you've gone on to work with? I continued with using objects uh, from my grandma's kitchen. She was a Tupperware lady, and my entire collection right now in the stores is uh, was developed from her vintage Tupperware. And I really like the shape and the simplicity of the forms. It allows me to mm-hmm. experiment with different finishing techniques. They're very sturdy. <laughs> they hold up really well. Yeah. So describe for people who might not be familiar with your work yet what these look like in terms of their their weight and their size, you know, a general size, and and their sturdiness, because it's one of the things that is very attractive and compelling about your work. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I love the pots because you can put them outside and forget about them. They're frost-proof. And at first, I would turn the empty ones over when it would snow, thinking if they filled up, that they would somehow crack. Uh, But I become so lazy. Now, when it snows, I just let them all, you know, fill up and let the snow melt, and it doesn't seem to damage the pot at all. Describe the the actual material you're using and how you create the the how to make a pot. Yeah, how you make your pots. Yeah, yeah. the materials are uh, Portland cement, and combining that essentially with a soilless potting mix. Hypertufa resembles a limestone tufa 
that was typically used to carve watering troughs in England. And Mm -hmm. I could walk you through how I make a pot using a basket as a form. What I do is I'll get all of my materials together and make sure I've got everything on hand and ready to go before I attempt to make the pot. I'll gather Portland cement, perlite, concrete bonding adhesive, duct tape, plastic sheet. Uh, To do a a basket, first I duct tape the outside of the basket. And in a mixing tub, I'll add equal parts, Portland cement, perlite, and peat moss. I'll add a small amount of water and adhesive. Uh, The proportion's typically about two-thirds water to a third adhesive and mix that together. And I'll let it set up for about 30 minutes before I press the mix into the bottom of the basket. The depth should be about at least a quarter inch thick. And then I'll center the inside form. The pot is shaped between the basket, which is the outside form, and the inside form. So I'll add the mix slowly, which builds up the walls and continue to press the mix down as I go. I've got a little spray bottle with water and I'll spray the mix because as I'm working with it, it tends to dry out a little bit. And I get it in all the spots so it can properly pick up the pattern and the texture of the basket. And once it's finished, I cover it in a plastic sheet and mist it daily. After about three to five days, I carefully cut away the basket. It's still somewhat delicate, so I try to handle it as little as possible. And mist it every day for 28 days. That achieves the maximum uh, curing. And once it's cured, I'll set it aside out maybe under a tree and The rain will wash away the alkalinity of the cement, so it's okay to plant. But if I want to speed up the process, which I typically do, I'll place the pot in a bucket of water and then replace the water every day for about a week. And then at that point, the the pot will be ready to plant. So it's quite a process from the, the start to the finish. I am Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Claire Banfield of a pot spot in Portland, Oregon. Claire's handcrafted hypertufa pots are formed from a basis of Portland cement, water, a bonding agent, and some lightening organic material such as peat moss or core. Claire's life in the outdoors, along rivers, in cabins and woods, near and around Portland, with her plant-loving family, perhaps grew her into the maker she is today. Her experimentations with different forms from which to craft her pots often starts in the most common everyday items from house and home, like mixing bowls, Tupperware, leftover baskets, and glassware. Although she originally intended to learn how to craft containers using hypertufa in order to make large-scale raised garden beds, her own impatience and sense of urgency got her making smaller-scale pots first, and she's never looked back. Her garden was the catalyst for her adventure in making garden and plant pots of a shapely nature. 
We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Claire Banfield of A Potspot. Are you familiar with her work? I have been enjoying her particular aesthetic and sense of humor for some time now, and she had me cracking up over her description of the beautiful, vicious cycle of her impatience and then obsession to make the garden beds and then needing to redirect into the pots, which have held her attention ever since. This reminds me of just about every gardener I know. When we get a particular plant or planting scheme or technique into our stubborn, determined heads, and nothing, nothing will deter us. We are, at our very cores, experimenters and makers. Even though we may not have a line of such sweet pots as Claire has, cast from such unlikely shapes as your grandmother's baking items and vintage light fixtures, and with great names such as Lulu, George, and Frank. I love stories like this. If you like knowing who I'll be speaking with in advance, or you like getting direct links to the audio from each week's episode at the end of each month, make sure to head to cultivatingplace.com and sign up for the monthly A View From Here newsletter. It lets me share news with you a little more directly, like the news from Gardens Illustrated in my February newsletter. What'd you all think about that? I'm very proud, very proud. But such an acknowledgement is a strong reflection of the great gardening going on in this world and the guests who share that with us here. So thanks for listening and for taking part. If you missed the newsletter news, check it out and let me know what you think. And now back to our conversation with Claire Banfield of A Pot Spot. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Claire Banfield of A Pot Spot in Portland, Oregon. Her handcrafted hypertufa pots display a world of personality as does their maker. And the very first pot she made was formed using her grandmother's KitchenAid mixing bowl. She named the first pot for her grandmother, and she works hard to not make the same pot twice. Welcome back. I have a couple of questions that came to mind while you were describing this. You described cutting the basket away. Is it always the case that the form you are using is then destroyed? The Tupperware and the KitchenAid mixer, I can flip them upside down and the pot pops out. But yeah, which is great. The baskets are just a one-time deal because once you put that concrete in, there's really no way to salvage the basket. The only way to get that pot out is to cut it. Same with glass. I like to cast stone and glass. And then I have a whole, like a very large face shield. I look like I'm a member of the SWAT team. My little dog <laughs> goes crazy. Because you have yeah, to break, have to break the glass it. Yeah. to get. So that must make you think two or three times about what forms you're going to use. Oh, for sure. And it's really fun to yeah. find objects that you just typically want. The shapes or the textures are strange. I'm really into doing work that is somewhat unusual. I don't want to try Mm -hmm. and replicate a classic form, something that's been done before. Even when I make something, 
if I'm going to do it again, I need to find a way somehow to do it differently. I'm always experimenting. And I think that's also one of the attractive things to me about your work is it has it has this real sense of craft in the most historic use of that word and that it feels very individual and one-of-a-kind pieces. I think that also brings up this concept of your being inspired in many ways by the simple, clean lines of modern architecture, but also some traditionalism and simplicity of aesthetic in traditional Japanese gardens. So tell us a little bit about those two inspirations and how they come to bear on your on your art, Claire. Well, I once had to describe my work to somebody, and I said it was really about connecting opposites, that I like to create pots that could be found in Fred Flintstone's front yard or George Jetson's living room. You know, I I wanted to some, you know, if you look at it, I want you to kind of look at it twice and think, was that, was that something that was dug out of the ground or dropped out of a spaceship? <laughs> yeah. You have a very characteristic way of displaying your pots in the imagery that I've seen. How do you use your pots at home? Well, I just, I think the most interesting thing to do with the pot is find a fun plant. At first, when I started making pots, it was all about the pot. And the thing I really enjoy is making a piece for a plant that is special to somebody. I think a lot of times pots become an afterthought. And I want the pot to showcase the plant. And I wouldn't, if in a perfect world, if one of my pots is planted and somebody walked into the room and saw it, I would want them to notice the plant first. I want the pot to Mm -hmm. really show the beauty of the plant and reflect that and in no way detract from the plant itself. But I want the pot to also somehow enhance the plant and just be a a really, plants are such good friends. They deserve nice homes. (laughs) I think some of the most arresting ways in which I've seen your pots work in sort of synchronicity with their plants is the the simplicity of the pots really seems to go well with with green just green so they aren't necessarily huge floral containers so much as they are as you say these wonderful backgrounds or frames to really highlight the beauty of a plant form or a particular shade of green. So when I think of your work, I automatically think of succulents or air plants or really some some structural green 
um, that has a little bit of solid form or interesting drape? Is that is that something you work towards specifically? When I'm making a pot, there's really nothing specifically I'm thinking about. It's more of a feeling or intuition. I really mm-hmm. admire old objects, pottery, like a water jug that a farmer made and you know, 600 AD Japan or just something that was meant to serve a purpose and has a simple, Mm. honest, authentic beauty. I'm not into anything that's too ornate. I think that's what really draws me to the idea of the Japanese garden. It's just more of a feeling the ones I think I love the most have that really, it's almost a primal shape that is reminiscent of a pear or a teapot, or it has a, a roundedness to it, um, but that is also very clean and simple that it makes you want to hold it in your hands like a bowl or an offering. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I love something that just kind of looks like, yeah, like a swollen Buddha belly or... Right. (laughs) (laughs) I like uh, making things and having it bring up a sense of something else. You know, when I look at an old stone wall, I'll think about who was back in the day, who made the wall, you know, what was happening at the time. And it's it can kind of transport you and take you away from where you are. And I think that's what's fun about creating different unusual forms. And one time somebody had said to me, your pots have a little bit of wonkin in them. They're just kind of like you. And (laughs) I thought, well, thanks. And now that's like a selling point. I'm like, my pots are wonky. They're just like me. <laughs> Strange and unusual. <laughs> now, right, right. No, and and I, I want to I want to pat them a little uh, bit, like thanks. you were saying about the Buddha, <laughs> the Buddha belly. So one of the things that came up for me while I was doing my reading about your work and your history is this um, connection kind of parallel that you create these these items these pots out of the the earth and its materials and and these extracts of the earth and you live on what you describe as an extinct volcanic vent in the Columbia River Gorge and there was something about the kind of like ash and fire and brimstone of that and the making of these earthen materials and then you're forming them that seem to have this lovely, I don't know, is is there a connection to those things? For sure. I live on a four-acre piece of property, and it is at the very top of an extinct volcanic vent called Prune Hill, which was part of the Boring Lava Field. And Mm. they early 1900s, the entire hill was just filled with prune and dryers. And if you were really lucky, you might get crowned prune queen in the downtown. The back of the property overlooks the gorge, which is a large canyon. 
has views of Mount Hood and the river, and it's really a, a beautiful spot. Do you find you draw inspiration from the volcanic legacy and texture and kind of strength of that landscape? Yeah, and I find strange things in the yard. I recently dug up a very large piece of petrified wood, and uh, when the sun hits it, it looks like it's on fire. It kind of dances in the light. The property has an organic blueberry orchard that was planted in the 40s, Mm. and there's apples and apricots, raspberries, cherries, pears, Asian pears, kiwis, plums, figs, all kinds of fruit trees. There's two houses on the property, and the other house takes care of the entire property. They have a woofer. Yes. And, oh, yeah. 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 And That's we've fantastic. had people yeah. from France and China, Australia. Uh, recently, the woofer, uh, his name is Gintz. He's been there for about two years. And a year and a half ago, I hired him to help me and assist me with making the pots. It's been really nice because I needed help, and having somebody that lives and works on the property is important because I feel like it. I needed somebody who uh, could go with the whole vibe of what I was trying to create. And about how many pots are you making a day, a week, a year? Well, it all depends. About a week I would say maybe 20 pots. It's a very, very slow process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, I would imagine it's very time consuming. I've got a, a video on my website. And Ooh, okay. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a small little, it's maybe two or three minutes long. And it was filmed in eight millimeter. And I loved Mr. Rogers growing up when he would go and, uh, you know, they'd go to the crayon factory and he'd kind of visit. And so we tried to do a video that shows um, the whole process. It shows me out in the studio and taking pictures inside and just kind of a, a day in the life of a pot spot. Excellent. I will definitely include a link to that on the web posting. A- another follow-up question I had, how how toxic is the material to you, your hands? It is terrible. I have to wear um, you know, gloves at all times. I always have a dust mask handy and I mm-hmm. you know, I've got special filters on my shop vac in the garage. But it's um it's definitely something to be very cautious with I okay. when I'm when I sometimes I'll watch um, you know videos on YouTube instructional videos and the people aren't even sometimes they're not wearing gloves and I think how is this not burning <laughs> their hands mm-hmm. and you know so especially doing it on such a you know in a continual basis Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's more to do with its acidity or, or alkalinity. Yeah, it's the alkalinity. And, and that's why— So that it's caustic. It's not really toxic, per se. It's just caustic. Yeah, and it's just that fine uh, powder. You just don't want that breathing in your lungs. 
Um, what do you do with your waste materials or waste water from the process? Do you are you concerned about those on your land? No, I just kind of rinse it. There, we when we make the pots in the uh, tub, I have so many forms that I'm we we can pretty much use up most of the mix, and there really isn't a lot of excess. Okay, so waste is not a big a, a yeah. Big waste issue isn't for you, isn't too much of an issue. What is your biggest pot to date, and what is your smallest pot? My biggest pot really actually isn't probably that big. I would say it's about two and a half feet wide, and by. Oh, let's let me think here. I would say my biggest pot is about a foot and a half wide by two and a half feet wide by maybe a foot and a half tall. Really isn't that big. Mm -hmm. And my smallest mm -hmm. pot are the um, ones I cast in the old Tupperware uh, snack cups. And those are mm. about two inches by two inches by maybe an inch and a half. That's great. That's great. And do most of them have a drainage hole? The stone itself is naturally porous. So a drainage hole isn't needed. But on the larger mm -hmm. pots, I will cast them with a small drain a plastic drain on the bottom. And mm -hmm. that way, if I'm planting a cactus or succulent or something that is very particular as far as the roots need to stay dry, you know, I can put it in the pot and the pot itself will act as a reservoir, the stone. So it will hold mm -hmm. water and then distribute it back to the soil as it dries out, which is really convenient mm -hmm. because a lot of times with potted plants, um, there's a problem with keeping the roots dry and then keeping the, the soil moist enough for the plant. So, And a, a tip I, I tell people, too, and when I'm watering the pots, I'll uh, water the pot, the outside of the pot itself and then let the pot uh, absorb and distribute it to the soil. A lot of times, you know, the plants don't want uh, water on the leaves and might not even be, you know, time yet to water the pot. So if you just water the outside of the pot, the pot will give it to the plant when the plant wants it. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Claire Banfield finds her plants to be good friends friends for whom she'd like to provide nice homes in her pots. She likes to hope that people will see her pots and will be inspired to choose just the right one for the plants they love, not as competition to the beauty of the plant, but as a perfect supporting partner. We'll be right back after a break to hear more about her journey. Stay with us. Hey again, it's me, Jennifer. Something about Claire's cultural sensibility rings so very true with her artistic vision. 
the somehow pleasing and yet funny combination of a classic Buddha belly or a farmer's handcrafted water jug right alongside Fred Flintstone, George Jetson, and Mr. Rogers visiting the crayon factory in his neighborhood. Tell me you don't love that. And while I will never have quite the flair that Claire has, I know too that this freedom to experiment and play and express my own cultural sense and idiosyncrasies, it's one of the great gifts of the garden. Do you find that? I hope so. It seems good and right to be fully ourselves through these very personal, although very shared, activities of gardening. If you and I haven't connected yet, follow the program's more daily level conversations on Instagram and Facebook. After all, the whole point of Cultivating Place is to have conversations like these, sometimes quirky, about things we love and that connect us all. Now back to our conversation with Claire Banfield and her legion of lovely pots. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to hear more from Claire Banfield of a pot spot in Portland, Oregon. Her smallest pot is the size of a Tupperware snack cup. Her largest is several feet tall and wide. All of her pots look either very old or very modern, a connecting of opposites, as she likes to say. Welcome back. The stone is interesting because the plant really likes the material. The When people in England, during the Industrial Revolution, they called it mountaineering when they would go hike around the Alps. And they would clip these small little alpine plants uh, for cuttings, and they always died. But they found if they put those cuttings in these abandoned watering troughs, they would thrive and grow. And so when the plant, the roots, are getting close to the stone, the roots will multiply and spread out and will attach themselves to the stone. And I tell people it's like a scene from fatal attraction when I need to repot a plant. I have to get a screwdriver and stab the entire outside and scrape the plant out, you know, extract it from the pot because the roots are all just stuck on the side. <laughs> and where do you then sell your pots? I sell them in shops and boutiques all over the country. I'm uh, currently all over the West Coast, Colorado, Missouri, New York. I've got new clients in, uh, in Indianapolis and Arizona and uh, just seems to keep getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> mm-hmm. I also, oh, I also uh, do fine art work, and I do that under uh, my own name. I have a representation out at a gallery on the coast, and mm. so I'm also doing exhibits and uh, other work besides the uh, retail line I do with a pot spot. When I started making pots, 
and decided to turn it into a business. I had gone to the library and checked out a lot of business books, and everyone said that even if you do not have an understanding of what it is that you really want to do, you need to have a business plan. And my initial business plan was to start a company that I could sell my my pots and have like a product line. And uh, that I thought that was somewhat constricting. I didn't want to have to keep recreating the same pot over and over. So I figured if mm. I could also venture out and do fine artwork, then I could kind of bridge the gap between the two. Yeah. You have names for every one of your pots that are fabulous. Oh, thank you. Talk about how you name your pots, Claire. When I first started that first pot, my grandma's KitchenAid mixer, my grandma's name was Roseanne, and so I named the pot Rosie. When I initially brought my pots in to a buyer, I figured I had to have a name for everyone just to distinguish a pot from, you know, one pot from another. And I had mm -hmm. initially called my first pot Rosie after my grandma. And so I just continued naming them after family and friends. Some are just, <laughs> you know, people that I'd like to be friends with. Like I've got a pot uh, that was cast in my grandma's uh, vintage Tupperware that was her old lettuce keeper. And mm -hmm. I call that one Lou after Lou Reed. I, of course, never knew him, but he was a friend in my head. So, there yeah. you go. <laughs> and they really, um, they really bring out some of the personality in the pots. The, the names do. At least they do for me. Oh, thanks. So you do quite a bit of charitable partnering with your work. Talk a little bit about why that is important to you, Claire. Well, I feel like I've had a lot of people who've been incredibly generous, whether they're just people on Instagram that leave me nice comments or the buyers who buy my pots and put them in their stores. And I really am so appreciative to be able to make the pots on a daily basis and be a part of people's gardens that I feel like I'm so lucky I could, I needed to do something to give part of that good karma that comes my way back out into the world. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Describe one or two of the of the partnerships you've been involved with recently. A lot of uh, the charities people are pretty familiar with, like St. Jude or the Boys and Girls Club. But I'm really particularly interested in helping um, women and children and minorities, people who are t overlooked, one of the charities that I really love is called Women Build. It's a division of uh, Habitat for Humanity. It highlights home ownership 
and the challenges facing women. The charity is great because it provides construction skills and helps women learn how to build homes, which can help build safer communities and provide independence through housing. Another charity that I really like is there's a small airfield that's close to my house. It's the second oldest airfield in the United States. It's called the Pearson Field, and they have an education center, and they offer free aviation classes every Saturday, and it's open to Mm -hmm. anybody, but they particularly uh, try and engage young girls, minorities, and kids of different abilities that are often overlooked when being involved in science and technology, uh, the STEM programs. And there mm-hmm. is so much history with the airfield that I feel like if the kids that go aren't particularly interested in aviation itself, it opens them up to the possibility of uh, just, you know, all the different possibilities that are out in the world. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to add about the process of your work or the meaning of your work to you, Claire? Yeah, I would encourage everybody to try to make a pot and get into it themselves. And if you're not interested in making a pot, Uh, just to get out and try something that you've always been wanting to do. I find that when I'm doing something new, I feel um, most alive. And sometimes I get in a rut where I just kind of get in a schedule. And I, I, I really feel like the opportunities and everything that has come my way was really just about experimenting and trying something that I didn't necessarily think that I could do. And it was just plugging away at it. And I once read a horoscope. I was, it was right before I started the business. And I thought, who in the world is even going to want to buy one of my bots. You know, the whole thing (laughs) just seemed completely ridiculous and somewhat self-indulgent. But the horoscope said that I needed to put my practical ideas into action regardless of the benefit or if there's any immediate outcome. And I feel like sometimes when we're doing something, we're thinking, what, what am I going to get out of this? But the, the thing I find when I'm making the pots, it really is just the process itself that I enjoy. It's every step. It's thinking about an idea and a shape and then gathering the materials, and then turning those materials into something solid, uh, you know, an object that I can hold in my hand. And that's just a very satisfying um, process from the start to the finish. 
Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Claire. I I love this story of how your garden inspired you to do something, and it led to this beautiful journey. Well, thank you so much for having me. I listen to you all the time when I'm out making the pots, so uh, you're you're part of every pot. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Authentic, honest beauty handcrafted and yet supremely practical. Claire Banfield's simple stoneware gray hypertufa pots are reminiscent of eggs or pears or teapots, of empty bowls whose open space are offerings in themselves. Perhaps the curves are reminiscent of the curve of the earth herself. Perhaps this is the primal draw of them. Claire's willingness to experiment at making and crafting in her garden and out speaks to that maker part of any gardener at this time of year especially when we're thinking, planning, scheming for the season to come, hoping to make nice homes for our plants too. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Thank you for listening. To see photos illustrating Claire's pot making and artistry, visit cultivatingplace.com. While you're there, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode of Cultivating Place. Even better, join in the conversations by following Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. What are your favorite practical forms in the garden? I'd love to hear. Best of all, if you enjoyed this program, share it with others. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music by Matt Schultz. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.